Let me uh, open us up with a word of prayer before we open up the, the word and hear from God uh, through the text this morning. God, thank you for this time to be together. Thank you for um, just the, the family that you give us in each other. Uh, and Lord, as we um, dive into some less fun passages of the Bible than maybe the past few weeks, God, help us to see what you want us to see. Help us to, to have eyes to see the world and ourselves the way that you do. And God, help us to respond um, in ways that uh, bring life um, to ourselves and to the, to the world around us, Lord. Uh, thank you for this time that we have together. We give it to you, Lord. This is your time. And we love you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First of all, I'm, I'm wearing glasses again. I haven't worn glasses in a few years, so uh, I, all of a sudden I needed my glasses again. And I don't know how to do the mask and the glasses thing, so if you know tricks... Help me out here. I'm fogging up while I'm worshiping this morning. <laughs> uh, one of the things I love about the Psalms, and we're in this Psalm series, we've got uh, this week, and then Pastor Ty is going to share uh, from the Psalms again next week uh, and close out the series. But one of the things I love about the Psalms is uh, it gives us so much of our music in the church. So much of our music in the church comes from the book of Psalms. And not about you guys, but I love music. Um, I love that ringtone. Uh, and I love uh, to sing and express myself. Um, that's something that's always been a part of my life. And those who know me well know that I love sad songs. I don't know why I would always rather listen to a sad song than a happy song. It doesn't make sense. I know that's weird. I'm a genuinely positive person, and yet I love sad songs. Um, one, of my <laughs> uh, one of the things I love about sad songs is the honesty that, that so much of life I feel like we're going around trying to act like it's all okay and we have it all together when we may be falling apart on the inside. I love uh, sad songs so much. There was a whole genre of music that I got into um, called emo music. Anybody? Nope. Okay, just me. No more emo fans. All right. Uh, this came from music. It started in the 80s. It came from like new wave music, sad songs, stuff like the Smiths and, the, and Morrissey and these... It just depressed people, right? And then later on, it got, you know, they added, you know, heavy guitar to it, and it became full emo music. And in the early 2000s, an album came out uh, by a band called Dashboard Confessional, and it's literally an entire album of a guy whining about a girl breaking up with him. It's awesome. It's so good. And it's just so funny to me because, you know, we would go, uh, we had friends that were in emo bands and we would go to see a show and you'd see, uh, you'd see somebody getting out of their brand new like BMW that their parents bought for them um, and get out of the car looking like this emo guy, all sad and depressed with very few problems in his actual life, but man, he's going to sing about the girl that broke his heart, right? That was emo music and I loved it. I ate it up. One of my favorite current internet memes is people using this, this Snapchat filter on their dogs to make an emo dog. Check it out. I love that. That dog is so emo. That's like the one extreme, right? Like this, this music that generally comes out of privilege, but, you know, a, a girl broke my heart, so I'm going to sing a whole album on it. Then there's the other side, which is like this, this thing, this phenomenon that's happened in churches today uh, where, where most of the songs we sing in church don't acknowledge the harsh realities of life, that things aren't always okay, that we don't have it all figured out, and sometimes we need to cry out to God. I saw a post from um, one of my grad school professors, uh, Professor Al Roxborough, 
uh, and he shared a Christianity Today article from an Old Testament scholar named Michael J. Rhodes, and he critiqued the top 25 worship songs on the charts. Uh, the top 25 worship songs mean the most played in churches, the most played on Christian radio stations. And what he found was the word justice um, was only mentioned once in those top 25 songs, despite the fact that the one word, there's multiple words for justice in the Bible, uh, Hebrew words uh, for justice in the Bible. Just one of those Hebrew words is mentioned 65 times in the Psalms. There was not a single uh, mention uh, in the top 25 worship songs about the poor, despite the fact that on pretty much every page of the Psalms, you're going to see the word uh, something crying out on behalf of the poor or God's care for the poor. Widows, uh, refugees, and the oppressed are mentioned twice, but one of those mentions is uh, about being an orphan in a spiritual sense and not dealing with the reality that there are kids in the foster care system and who are actual literal orphans in our world. The word enemies, it's the third most common character in the Psalms. If you read the song, you're going to see the word enemy over and over again. In our worship songs, it's used as like a spiritual thing, but the, the psalmists were talking about real-life enemies. We struggle in this life. There's all sorts of conflict going on. This is the thing that he said was the most damning of our worship music. Not a single question is ever asked of God, despite the fact that the psalmists are regularly questioning God. I saw this, this lack of... Um, the ability to lament, that's what that's called when we cry out to God, when we question God, when we say, where are you, God? We're lamenting. And I saw the church's lack of ability to lament when COVID first hit. We were kind of in lockdown and we're trying to figure out how do we do church online and all this stuff is going on. There's unrest in the streets and people are sick and dying and we're still singing the same five, six popular songs that talk about spiritual realities but not dealing with the realities of the fact that our world felt like it was coming apart at the seams. We didn't have language for it. We didn't know how to go there and have these hard conversations. So that's what I'm here to do today. I'm here to be the emo pastor who, who turns us back to this genre of communal lament. We do this together. We cry out to God together because sometimes we don't know what's going on, and we feel lost, and we feel scared, and we don't know if God is up to anything at all. And so I've had this critique of worship music for years, and I actually have a lot of uh, worship music in my own playlists that uh, is really honest and comes straight from the Psalms and asks hard questions, and yet I feel convicted that we don't sing these at church. And we talked about this as a leadership team this week. We're like, hey, what does it mean to be a church of authentic worship? And, and the number one thing was we got to just be honest. We can't fake it. We can't act like everything is okay. Sometimes we need to go to the deep places, the hard places. We need to include this practice of communal lament in our worship together. And lament is such an important type of biblical writing. You can actually find it from cover to cover. God laments in the book of Genesis. Jesus laments over his church in the book of Revelation. It's all throughout, from the first book to the end, lament is present. There's an entire book called Lamentations uh, that is just God's church saying, what's going on, God? We need you to save us. So I want to just help us understand this practice a little bit. And then as a church, commit to let's, let's be honest when we worship. Let's have times where we, we call out the things that aren't the way they should be. 
And so we're going to look at Psalm 12. We're going to look at a couple passages of Psalm 90, and we're going to actually look to the words of Jesus this morning to shape in us a culture of healthy lament. So Psalm 12 goes like this. Help, Lord, for no one is faithful anymore. Those who are loyal have vanished from the human race. Everyone lies to their neighbor. They flatter with their lips, but harbor deception in their hearts. May the Lord silence all flattering lips and every boastful tongue. Those who say, by our tongues we will prevail, our own lips will defend us. Who is Lord over us? Because the poor are plundered and the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will protect them from those who malign them. And the words of the Lord are flawless, like silver purified in a crucible, like gold refined seven times. You, Lord, will keep the needy safe and will protect us forever from the wicked, who freely strut about when what is vile is honored by the human race. This is ancient emo music. I'm going to say that again. This is ancient emo music. It's full of hyperbole. No one is faithful anymore. I don't think he means that literally. He's saying it feels like no one is faithful anymore. Everyone lies to their neighbor. It's just extreme language to say what has happened in the world around us. What is going on? This psalm reminds us that it's okay to tell God this is not the way it's supposed to be. That should be a regular part of our prayer life. This is not the way it's supposed to be. The psalmist says, look, the people aren't faithful. The ones that you've rescued time and time again, they keep wandering away and doing their own thing. They forget about you, God. People aren't honest. He says they lie to their neighbor. They're lying constantly. You know, I see this. The people are unfaithful. They've turned from God. They're lying to their neighbor. It goes against what Jesus said are the very basic ethics of being a Christian, which is to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. But the people have rejected God as their Lord. And justice is running rampant. And this is, this is what the psalmist is crying out. They're saying, God, I don't, I don't know what to do. I don't know where help is going to come from. Because it seems like the bad guys are always winning. And it feels like I don't know where to turn. Verses 5 and 8. 5 through 8. Let's read those again. I, I just love these verses. Because the poor are plundered and the needy grown. I now arise, says the Lord. I will protect them from those who malign me. And the words of the Lord are flawless, like silver purified in a crucible, like gold refined seven times. You, Lord, will keep the needy safe and will protect us forever from the wicked who, will freely, who freely strut about when what is vile is honored by the human race. I love that even in the midst of this despair, even in the midst of this extreme language, of no one is faithful, everyone lies. You, you showed us what it meant to love you and to love our neighbors, and no one seems to be doing it, but we trust in you. In the midst of lament, in the midst of questioning, we can still cry out to God and say, but you are good. I trust you. We see all these things happening in the world around us. This, this ancient song uh, is still relevant for today. 
Because we see this happening around us. We see people running wild, unfaithful to the Lord. We see people lying to their neighbors, mistreating each other. We see injustice. We still see the poor being uh, oppressed. And it shouldn't be that surprising because it's the entire story of the Bible, if you think about it. At creation, God says, this is the tree of the, the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat of it or you will surely die. And what do they do? They eat of it. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what, what does that mean? At the heart of this tree is this idea that we will be like God in that we get to decide what is good and what is bad, what is right and what is wrong. And that has been the story of humanity ever since. I get to decide what is wrong or, and what is right. I reject God as Lord. I am the Lord of my own life. I will do things my way. This is the story of the entire Bible, is God continuing to intervene and call us back, rescue and redeem us, even though we always seem to push him away and say, I will be the Lord of my own life. You see it in Abraham's family, the people of Israel. God does something amazing for them. They forget, they wander away. God removes his hand of blessing and protection over them, and then all of a sudden they find themselves in a disastrous situation, and they lament, they cry out, they repent, they say, God, we need your help, and he rescues them. And then over time, the people of Israel forget what God did, and the cycle of wandering from God, and wandering from the love of God and the love of neighbor, and it starts all over again, and it's the story of all of human history. The psalmist quotes the unfaithful here who questions, who is Lord over us? And this is the question we've been asking the entire history of humanity. Finding ways to reject God as Lord and saying, I get to be in charge. I get to decide what's right and wrong for me. And one of the important things to understand about lament in the Bible is that most of it is dealing with God's people. We do see uh, parts of the prophetic books in the Bible where lament is happening, where God calls out other nations, evil uh, people such as Babylon and other nations that will eventually conquer Israel. But the majority of the prophetic lament and the lament psalms and lament in general in Scripture is dealing with God's people. It starts with us. It starts with the church. Often God looks at us and he says, look, you're just trying to be like everybody else. I chose you, I saved you, I rescued you, and I called you to this new life, and you keep wanting to be like everybody else that don't acknowledge me. You want to rule things your way, and I'm not going to force you to faithfulness, but I also won't stand by and, let, and put my stamp of approval on it. God says in these situations with the people of Israel, I remove my hand of protection and provision from you, and I'll judge you like I judge every other nation. Why is God so harsh to Israel? I mean, when you think about the horrors of these empires of Babylon and Assyria, and, and even eventually the Roman Empire that's going to come conquering. They're horrible. They're monstrous regimes. But God is harder on Israel because they should know better. He chose them and rescued them. He performed miracle after miracle for them, and he called them to be different. But the cycle plays out over and over again throughout the pages of Scripture. God does something amazing. People commit to following him. They forget. They go back to wandering away. To be honest, I think this is one of the reasons why our top 25 worship songs don't deal with lament in the way the Bible does. 
Because I think if we look around us and see all that is going on, we realize that things are not the way they're supposed to be. And even worse, we may realize that I might be a part of the problem. We may have to take a hard look at our lives, the things that we spend our time and our resources on, the things that take up our, our calendar. We as Christians can proclaim with our mouths that Jesus is Lord, but what is the rest of our life saying? What is the story of our life saying about us? It's this very thing that Jesus lamented multiple times. Yes, Jesus lamented, and I think that's important that we hone in on that. Jesus lamented the people of Israel. You don't see him, you don't see him talking a whole lot about the Romans who are, who are clearly bad guys in the story. His harshest words are for his own people who should know better. When he enters Jerusalem before he's crucified, there's two different prayers that he prays, two different laments that he, he cries out over Israel. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, this is Luke 13. You who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Another time, he's approaching Jerusalem, and he saw the city. This is Luke 19. He wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. What is Jesus lamenting? He's lamenting the fact that God has been constantly chasing after them. He's like a hen who wants to protect his chicks. He wants to take us under his wings and care for us and protect us. And we continue to run away from his protection and toward destruction. He says, if you only knew what would bring you peace. So much of our lives is, is chasing after peace and comfort and contentment and fulfillment. And we all too often look for it in every place but in Christ. This is Jesus' lament. He laments over his people. You should know better. I've rescued you before, time and time again. I called you to be different. I called you to be a light of the world, and you chose to be just like the rest of the world. And we need this kind of lament today. I wanted to preach a different sermon this week. Um, I wanted to just get real technical. Here's how lament works, you know, theoretical academic. And over and over, as I continue to read these passages, God just kept bringing things to my mind that we need to lament over in the church. And it's not comfortable, it's not fun, and I don't want to do it, and I don't think we want to do it, but he just kept saying to me over and over again, don't sugarcoat it. Don't act like this is just some academic exercise. This is real. We can blame all of the problems that we see around us on the secular world, we can blame the fact that fewer and, uh, fewer and fewer people are attending church these days. We can lament the fact that the world around us seems more and more hostile to faith in Jesus. And don't get me wrong, Jesus and the prophets do lament over these types of things, but they spend most of their time lamenting over the unfaithfulness of God's people and calling them to repentance. And so when we lament, I, I believe that Jesus is saying you've got to look inward first. So what would Jesus lament about today in the American church? I'm going to share my perspective, and I don't have time to share everything. I'm just going to share the things that God just put in the forefront of my mind today as I was praying through this. And it's not an exhaustive list. There's probably plenty more. And, and I'm, you know, these are my convictions. Um, you may have a, a different viewpoint on these things. 
And I'm sure I have my own blind spots of things that I'm unwilling to, to, to question. All that caveat to say this. Here's what I feel like God was speaking to me this week. Jesus would lament the fact that the church is too often a show. People gather for an hour on Sunday to sing happy Jesus songs and hear a message that makes them feel good about their life. And everything is polished in a way that almost looks like the church is selling religious goods and services to a group of consumers. Rather than living life in a community that shapes us for life together of authentic worship, of loving community, of radical discipleship and dangerous justice and mercy. The book of Amos, the prophet Amos calls this out in the people of Israel. He says, I'm sick of your shows and your festivals. I don't want to hear another song until you choose to live as a faithful people. Jesus isn't wanting a show from us on Sundays. I think he would lament that there's story after story of abusive systems and leaders within churches and entire denominations. I think he would lament the fact that leaders and churches have far too often abused their power and hurt so many along the way. I'm sick, and I think Jesus is sick too, of reading about stories where pastors abuse their staff, fire them when they complain about it, and make them sign a non-disclosure agreement so they can never tell their story or find justice for what's happened to them. Too often, other leaders, either within that church or other churches, who should be speaking out for the protection of God's sheep, instead they come to the defense of these wolves in sheep's clothing. Because he made a mistake, but deep down he's a really good guy, or he just preaches the gospel so well, or... Look at how many people are getting saved. We can't argue with the fruit of his ministry. He must be doing something, right? I read too many articles this week that came out this week about stuff like this, and Jesus is lamenting. He's angry that this is happening in his church. I think Jesus would lament how much of ourselves we've devoted to partisan politics. And this is a bigger conversation than we can have today. It's actually something that we're going to be talking about in the series that we do in the fall. But in short, too many of us have fallen prey. I, I remember seeing this happen in my own life. When I first became a Christian, most of the people around me were amazing, and they had poured into my life and given me just a, a home, a place to belong. Um, they, they were just incredible people to call family. They took me in, and they helped me to, to get to know Jesus and learn who he was. Some of them, you know, subscribed to this brand of politics and political engagement that I just took hook, line, and sinker. They're saying, hey, Jesus cares about this issue. And I would read scripture and say, yeah, Jesus does care about this issue. And then I'd be like, but you want me to vote for that guy? Yeah, sure, he cares about this issue too, but look at all this other garbage that doesn't seem to line up with Jesus. And I'm like, don't worry about that. Don't worry about that stuff. In fact, I started to, to believe things about the world and political messages that I would have never believed before because well-meaning Christians thought that this was faithfulness to Jesus. I've seen too many people sell their souls over this. People who influenced me in so many positive ways and yet led me down a path that didn't lead me to Jesus. Here's what's crazy. 
This is the exact tactic that politicians want to use to get your allegiance. They want, they want to get you with one issue, one issue that you get really excited about, and then you're willing to ignore all the rest of the garbage that they represent. And there you go. And I don't care if you think I'm talking about the other person's side. It's both sides. It's all sides. This is how it works. And the church has been distracted and allowed politicians to prey on people of faith. I think that Jesus would lament this, that we've gotten distracted with global conspiracy theories and national politics so much that we've taken our eyes off what he's called us to do, which is love our neighbor. Imagine what would happen if every church in America committed to saying, I'm going to cut down the amount of news and YouTube and, and uh, blogs and podcasts and doom scrolling on social media about politics and what's happening in the world. Instead, I'm going to spend that time prayer walking my neighborhood. I'm going to spend that time praying for my neighbors. I'm going to spend that time serving locally, providing a tangible solution to a problem that we see here right in our own backyard. If every church in America did that, we might actually make a difference in this world. Instead of sitting in front of a TV or a computer, doom scrolling about things we can't do anything about. I, like I said, I, I could get on a soapbox and do this all day, and we don't need that. <laughs> we could probably spend a lot more time on these things that Jesus laments over his church, churches, but I just want to share one more. I want, to, I want to share one more thing that I think he laments. I think Jesus would lament the fact that young people who are raised in churches walk away from church in college or in their 20s, and many don't return. And we can blame that on something being wrong with youth culture or emo music in secular universities, and maybe there's some truth in that. But again, I think lament starts by looking inward. Young people, and I'm not talking about you like you're not here. Young people, you're here with us today. Our children see all of this stuff that Jesus laments over. They see famous preachers exposed for the very sins they preach against. They see abuse that happens in Christian churches and schools and homes. They see Christians proclaim Jesus as Lord, and then they live a completely different story. They pledge their allegiance to all sorts of other things. They hear Jesus say the greatest commandments are to love God and love their neighbors, and they see too many Christians living selfishly, ignoring their neighbors and sitting on the sidelines. They see us investing our lives in issues and arguments over ideas when we could be investing our time in real people's lives. Let me say that again. We're investing our lives in issues and arguments over ideas when we could be investing our time in real people's lives around us. The poor, the lonely, the hurting. So many people see all this and then they deconstruct their faith. And many people like myself, they've deconstructed their faith and they've sought to reconstruct it with the help of the Holy Spirit and with Scripture and a community of faith, right? And others, sadly, are handed a faith that is so twisted up they couldn't actually find Jesus in it at all. They weren't given enough raw materials to rebuild their faith once it got torn down. Man, aren't you glad you came to church today? <laughs> what a happy message, right? But I know I'm being real emo about things right now. I know I'm singing a sad song 
over us and over the churches in America. But this is what the lament psalms are meant to do for us. We're called to join Jesus in lamenting over the ways that we've gotten off track. In order for things to be the way they're supposed to be, we have to be able to recognize and name it when things aren't the way they're supposed to be. Even when we think it doesn't apply to us. You may hear the examples I've said, and you're like, well, I'm not like super into politics, and our church hasn't had that kind of as a part of our story. That's not my struggle. That's not what I deal with. And all that might be true, but lament is not just about our individual suffering. It's also about solidarity with others who are suffering. It's also about confessing that we as a people, not just me as an individual, we, we may have taken this thing off track. We cry out to God on our behalf. We repent over the ways that we've, we've not been the church that God has called us to be. Okay. I think I've sufficiently beat us up for this morning. And I want to talk about where do we go from here. Because lament always carries with it hope. No matter how emo the psalm is, there's always at least a glimmer of hope in there. Again, let's look at verses 5 through 8. Because the poor are plundered and the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord, and I will protect them from those who malign them. And the words of the Lord are flawless, like silver purified in a crucible, like gold refined seven times. You, Lord will keep the needy safe and will protect us forever from the wicked who freely strut about when what is vile is honored by the human race. God sees all that is happening. He hears the cries and the laments of his people and he's doing something about it. He will do something about it. And we're not passive about this either. A a different uh, kind of communal lament psalm, Psalm 90, it tells us this. This is in verse 12 and then in 17. It says this, teach, to, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. 17, may the favor of the Lord our God rest on us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. When he says, teach us to number our days, he's saying, give us some perspective, Lord. Help us to remember that you are Lord and we are not. You, you're eternal and we are finite. Remind us, Lord, that life is better with you as Lord, with you behind the steering wheel of my life, not me. Teach me to number my days, Lord. Remind me that you are Lord. You're a better Lord of my life and of this church than I am. He says, establish the work of our hands. Show us how we can honor you with our lives. Help us to invest our lives, our time, our treasures, our talents into things that matter, things that will last for eternity. We lament as a community for all the wrongs we see around us, but we also get involved alongside of Jesus, serving real people right in front of us, making the wrong things right again. We say to him, Jesus, we trust that you are doing something about it and we want to join you. We want to be your partners and bring justice and healing to this world. And I want to close with this. Because sometimes when we lament, because we see that all feels lost, sometimes it's hard. It's hard to have hope. It's hard to see that God is up to something and that he is doing something about all of this. How do we know that Jesus cares? How do we know that he hears our cries? How do we know that he's at work to make things right? Because he didn't leave us in our sins and suffering. See, Jesus didn't just lament all of the sin and suffering in the world. He took it to the cross. 
He took on all our sin and our suffering. He bore responsibility for it, even though he wasn't at fault. He said, the sin and suffering of this world doesn't have the final word. When we lament, we cry out to God because we want to believe that sin and suffering is not the end of the story. That Jesus took it all to the cross. And he didn't just give up everything 2,000 years ago and say, that's it. No, he's still at work. It says he sits at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf. He sends his Holy Spirit to be at work in the world. He is on the move, present with us and around us. He rose again. He defeated all of these things. And he's still at work. So, as we reflect, as we are honest with what's going on in life, and we're not honest because we want to be emo, we're honest because the Bible is honest, and it calls us to be honest with ourselves. As we do that, we can look to Jesus and see that even in the midst of our worst days, he didn't abandon us. He hasn't forsaken us. He went to the cross to pay for it all. And out of that, we can have true hope. We can have new life. We can look to him and say, Jesus, I believe you're at work in this world and I want to be a part of it. You've rescued me time and time again. You've forgiven my sins and you've given me new life, God. I want to live that out. And we do that as a community. We do that in missional communities where God puts something on our heart and we pray for it and we pray for a group of people and we make ourselves available to serve. We demonstrate this amazing love that he's displayed on the cross with the way that we live and the way that our life together, life of a, a loving community, a church that worships authentically, a, a church that's about radical discipleship where we lead each other closer to Jesus, a, a, a church that's about dangerous justice and mercy where we get uncomfortable so that we can share the good news of God through tangible acts in our community. That's how we respond. We cry out to God and say, this isn't the way it's supposed to be, but I know you've done something about it through Jesus, his life, his death, and resurrection, and I know you're doing something about it now. How can I be a part of that? How can we be a part of that? So I'm going to invite the band to come up, and I'm going to kind of close this with a prayer of lament and a prayer of hope, and the band is going to sing this song. It's a new song called Son of Suffering to remind us that Jesus did not run away from our sin and suffering, but he took it on our behalf to the cross. Because it's a new song, you may not catch on to it right away, that's okay. If you want to just try to sing along right off the get-go, go for it. If you want to just take a moment and pray, you can do that. If you just want to listen to the lyrics and take it in, that's okay too. Then after that, we're going to take communion together, and we're going to close our morning with this song. And it's a song that's familiar to many of us, How Great Thou Art, and it has this verse in it. It's such hope for me. And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Those are beautiful words of hope. That even out of the lament that things aren't the way they're supposed to be, it's not the end of the story. Join me in prayer. 
Jesus, this morning we, we could be overwhelmed by the images and the articles and the videos and the thing, the constant media that is trying to grab our attention. And we can be overwhelmed by hopelessness because we don't have any answers. It feels like all we can do is turn to sorrow or anger. Lord, we know that you grieve over these things. That you see the violence and the warfare. You see injustice and, and racism. That you see division. That the fact that there are still widows and orphans that are in need, we see all these things and we know that you see them too and you grieve over them. God, this morning we don't want to avoid the realities of the way the world is. We lament, we cry out, God, do something, please. How long, O oh Lord, must we wait? But God, even more so, we just, we lament and we repent on behalf of your church. We've been called by you to be the light of the world and too often we have contributed to the darkness. We've gotten distracted from what you've called us to do. In the process of trying to be the world's moral police, we have walked away from our own moral standards. And while that may be not true of each and every person in this room or this church in general, God, we, we are part of a bigger movement of, of Christianity. And we lament it, God. We say it's not okay. We, it's not the way it's supposed to be. Change us. Transform us. Humble us so that we might repent and get back on track. And lastly, Lord, as we see these things, we just confess that we, we've added to it. We lit the match and we keep adding fuel to the fire. But thank you, Jesus, that you didn't leave it there. That we ran away from you, but you chased after us. Thank you that we have hope that when we cry out to you, we're not crying out into some empty sky with no one listening on the other side, we're crying out to a God who cares and loves us, who forgives us and welcomes us back. Thank you, Jesus, that you took our sin and our suffering to the cross, that you paid our debt. Thank you that you love us that much. And God, may our, may our worship, even in the form of lament, not just be an hour a week on Sundays. Let us respond with entire lives devoted to you to say, God, you've rescued me. You've changed me. You've healed me. Help me be a part of the work that you're doing. That is worship, Lord. James says, religion that God our Father accepts is pure and faultless is to take care of widows and orphans in their distress. God, you want us to be a part of the work that you're doing. That's the worship you desire. Help us, Lord. Help us to look forward, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.